from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Robin Chandler, a Baha'i from the Boston area who was both an artist and a social scientist. I started the interview by asking Robin where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just north of Harvard Square, on family-owned property that had been purchased by my grandfather at the turn of the 20th century. And I grew up as a young girl going to parochial school. We were raised as Roman Catholics, my brother and I, I went to Perkill School for 12 years, elementary school, and then a four-year girls' high school. Mm-hmm. What were your interests growing up? I was pretty much interested in everything. My parents had sent me to travel internationally at 16, and so I had traveled to, the South, to South America and the Caribbean. I was a dancer, basketball player, swimmer, traveler, partier. <laughs> You name it, I did it. I had a lot of fun as a kid. Mm-hmm. What was the reason that you went international traveling at 16? I belonged to an organization called the Campfire Girls. I don't know if people knew the Girl Scouts. It was another organization, sort of a parallel girls' organization to the Girl Scouts. It was called Campfire Girls. And one of the reasons I was registered with Campfire Girls was because my family is Native American on both sides of my family. And Campfire Girls, the traditions of Campfire are based very much on Indian traditions. Mm-hmm. They go back in more than a century. I was a part of Campfire Girls and went sort of up through the ranks, was in Campfire for about, I don't know, maybe a decade. The senior group is called Horizon Club, or it was called Horizon Club at the time. One year they organized a Horizon Club conference afloat. And we went to South America and the Caribbean. We went to Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and Colombia. And in each of those ports, we got to stay with a family. It was it was a time of international exchange when the United States was promoting a lot of global exchange with a variety of countries. It really was an intense period of, of international diplomacy. And so all of the organizations and agencies in the United States were very focused on that. And so I got to stay with a family in Jamaica with a girl my age who was also kin campfire, and it was great. What did you do when you went there? Half of it was club med tourism sort of stuff mm-hmm. and meeting a lot of people. We got to meet our counterparts in various countries, and we got to have exchanges and debates with them about you know, a variety of issues and topics. The campfire tradition is very service-oriented, and so we did some service projects while we were traveling. We visited a number of development projects 
which was very different in those days. This was the 60s, and so development projects really were development projects. They weren't anywhere near um, sophisticated as they are now. And so we visited several communities where there were development projects going on and got a chance to see what our counterparts were doing with service organizations in their respective countries. Mm-hmm. Did this in any way form a, an idea of what you may want to do in, after high school? I was bitten by the travel bug, of mm-hmm. course. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I, was, I was fried. I was a done deal. There was no way I was going to stay in Boston. I mean, at this point, looking back on it, I've traveled on six continents. If I can get to Antarctica, I'll be a happy camper, but um, that's the only continent I haven't been to yet. And so I think that the the sort of wanderlust for an international life was really set not only by that experience, but also by my family background, which is very multi-ethnic, and, and the sort of notion that there's an enormous amount of diversity and variety in the human family, and there are all these extraordinary ways we reconcile them, in my case, inside my own, my own very large family. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of is this idea of being multi-ethnic and international travel was pretty much going to be the centerpiece of the general direction my life would take. I mean, I didn't know specifically what I would do. Mm-hmm. I was actually planning on being a, a linguist. I w- was very good at languages, and so I was planning on being a translator for the UN. That was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And how was your family multi-ethnic? I have a poem on my website that's called Suju German Scott Black. That's all one long word. That represents many of the ethnic groups that are part of who I am. Can you say it slowly? <laughs> <laughs> Suju German Scott Black Cherokee. <laughs> um, you know, Roman Catholic, Scottish, and Sue on my mom's side. And German Jew, Cherokee, and some black on my my dad's side. That's definitely multi-ethnic. Yeah, and then you just sort of Baha'i puts the cherry on the top and brings <laughs> it all together. So, what happened after high school? I went to college for a year mm-hmm. and took a year off because it really wasn't for me. It was 1968 that I actually went away to college. 67, the fall of 67, and the spring of 68. And this was, as any baby boomer knows, a tumultuous year. The world was turned upside down in every continent, every major city in the world, from Prague to Paris to Los Angeles, I mean, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there was an enormous amount of civil and political unrest, an enormous amount of student unrest. The assassinations took place in that time period. So everybody will remember that it was the Kennedy brothers Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, um, as well as a number of other civil rights workers, black and white, mm-hmm. the Native American movement. I mean, it was a very tumultuous period in which uh, I probably could have gone either way, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. becoming you know, extremely politically active, given my background, or taking the path I, I ended up taking, which was become a high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just made more, more sense to me once I heard about it. But it was that tumultuous year of 68, that made my first year of college very strange right. because it was just too much happening. It was, it was far too distracting a year. I had been a leader in high school. I'd been class president two different years, and so there was that potential in me. And when I was at the university that first year, I started a literary magazine that I was editor and founder of that lasted for about 20 years. So I was always doing leadership stuff or stuff that was 
involved initiating projects and things and and found ways to do them as a Baha'i that would not focus on overtly on politics or partisan politics, but would attempt to make a positive contribution in some way. Now, why did you avoid partisan politics? Well, as I mentioned, the, the tumult of the 1960s really drew uh, probably 80% of my generation in, in one form or another into some uh, a politically active movement because there was so much to be done in the post-civil rights era it was the era of the women's movement. Environmental justice was just beginning to, to take shape. The Vietnam War, of course, and so many uh, events that were in the news daily. This was really prior to the Internet, and yet still the information about local, national, and world events was ubiquitous. I think that the average individual who saw themselves as a participant in society, which you are raised as an American to be. In America, we're raised with a high level of patriotism and civic participation. You have a civic identity, and you have the option of participating in that civic identity in a variety of ways. You vote, you volunteer, you work for social service agencies, you work for your church. I mean, there's a variety of ways in which you can be active or to be service-oriented or to enable, engage that part of your sense that relates to your citizenship. But what those events ultimately did for most people was to activate your political identity or your social identity or your ethnic identity or your gender identity, maybe your religious identity but not from a spiritual standpoint. And I was very interested in engaging my spiritual citizenship, my sense of spiritual identity, because I did not see any way that any of these other approaches to solving entrenched problems, there was not, as far as I could see in the long run, going to be a positive outcome. It was a very violent period. And a lot of my peers were becoming involved in politics that I considered very confrontational and dangerous. I didn't particularly think that that form of sacrifice was anything that I wanted to be involved in because I wanted to be around to build a new world. And I felt that in order to do that, that I had to change. And I think that the era of the 60s, I think one of the most profound mantras of the 60s was let there be peace, let it begin with me. And I think this is where a lot of my colleagues and friends missed the cue. Mm. They thought they could change the world but not change themselves. And this, for me, is the absolute pivotal aspect, not only of being a Baha'i, but of being a global citizen. If you are not willing to change yourself, you cannot change the world. And probably 90% of the people who I knew and were close to were Marxists to, to one degree or another. And so they felt that there was this incredible feeling of brotherhood with other human beings, which was extraordinary. But they would be able to build this new superstructure in the world, and the world would change socially and politically because there was this new superstructure that would displace the old world order. But they had no real intention of ever changing themselves, and the idea was to violate and rebel against and every single social and political uh, custom or law that you could. And so while on the one hand a lot of people were being socially and politically active, they were also violating a lot of norms and laws and customs for the sake of being recalcitrant. Mm -hmm. And it's true, we were all young, and that's what you do when you're young. You just sort of test the boundaries. 
But I wanted more. Mm -hmm. I wanted more. And I realized, for whatever reason, that if there was going to be change in the world, I had to be a better person. Mm. At that point of consciousness that I encountered Baha'is. I had come out of a Roman Catholic tradition that didn't satisfy me spiritually because they could never answer my questions. I mean, this was throughout elementary school and high school. The questions that I posed to the nuns who taught us, the response always was, if you have faith, you will believe. Well, okay. It didn't allow people space to think. It didn't allow or stimulate or encourage the kind of independent investigation of truth that we as Baha'is understand as the very center of religious feeling of religious identity is that you have to know who you are and you have to have the encouragement and support of your faith and your religion to explore whatever the important questions for you are. At the same time, you have to be willing to submit yourself to a certain a certain set of laws and boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I was coming up uh, as a young Roman Catholic girl, I and mean, I was very typical, mm-hmm. if I hadn't become a Baha'i, I might have, God forbid, become a nun. I mean, I can't sort of imagine that. But, I mean, that's what we were groomed to do. Mm-hmm. When I was in Catholic school, you'd either get married or you'd become a nun. Fortunately, we're also just at the cusp of a period in which, you know, more and more girls were being encouraged to go to university and pursue a university education. And because parochial school in those days was more like prep school, most of us, you know, went to college and had a university experience. But... So the Roman Catholic faith was very important to you then? It was absolutely indispensable in shaping several aspects of my personality. The first was I received an enormously healthy respect for the existence of God from Roman Catholicism. I learned that there. I will never appreciate that enough in my way of thinking because I would hate to be an agnostic at this point in, in, in world, world affairs. I would hate to be an agnostic or an atheist because I think that belief in a higher power, a belief that the universe is designed by a divine architect and a prime mover is absolutely essential to being able to solve the intractable problems that we're facing in the 21st century. That's the first thing. second thing was they taught me how to study. <laughs> if anything, I was going to become an intellectual because... These were the school sisters of Notre Dame who taught us. And so there was a very, you know, intellectual orientation to the process. And I learned how to study well. I mean, I became an intellectual because of them. And the third thing was that the nuns who were teaching us were, unbeknownst to me at the time, I realize this now in retrospect, were feminist intellectuals. Hmm. These were very smart women who were extremely well-trained with advanced degrees, and they shaped us up, you know, intellectually and academically and philosophically. And so those points of contradiction were even cast in a, in a greater light for me because we had been trained to think. You know, we had been trained as intellectuals, and so all of the questions didn't make sense to me that were just a matter of faith, I think required a more logical explanation than they, they were able to give, at least in those days. Mm-hmm. I think that several of the subsequent problems that Christianity, and particularly Roman Catholicism, suffers from now is that inability to be able to accept the universality of religion and the oneness of religion. Mm. This is a problem, of course, a a challenge that all of the religions have. 
in this century, absolutely all of them. And I am extremely grateful that I was exposed to the teachings of Baha'u'llah because it opened my head up so wide that I would be able to accept and love all of the great prophets of all the religions and get inspiration from them and be challenged by them and be encouraged and supported. And I think more than anything, this sense of renewal that we feel with the prophets coming, you know, marching one after the other, renewing this covenant with humanity, makes us all feel as though someone cares about us at a very grand level and a very specific level from age to age, that this love that the Creator has for the created is a great reclamation for all of us, because we're all pretty wretched when it comes right down to it. So it was at university that you ran into the Baha'i Faith? It was actually the year I took off. Mm -hmm. I was a student at University of Massachusetts Amherst, took the subsequent year off, and was working at a teller in a bank in Harvard Square. Harvard Square in the 60s was it was like a one giant head shop. I mean, it was, it was very international because Harvard University was attracting people from all over the planet. Vast diversity. It was the 60s. There were a lot of drugs. There were a lot of people out, you know, a lot of gurus. A lot of that was floating around. But a friend of mine ran into a Baha'i who began talking to him about religion, and my friend was never interested in religion, but he knew I was. You know, I was interested in spiritual and religious ideas and subsequently introduced me to this individual and I started attending informal talks given by Baha'is called Firesides. Four months later, I became a Baha'i. Hmm. It was everything I believed. I mean, so I'm like, wow, this is terrific. So basically, you, you ran into something that you pretty much yeah. were in agreement with. Yeah, I didn't mm-hmm. fight it. Yeah. And I know a lot of people do. <laughs> and I appreciate that journey. I yeah. really do. But yeah. I was blessed. I was yeah. being prepared for this. Yeah. All of the principles of the faith made absolute sense to me. Everything was interconnected. You know, if you believed in the equality of men and women, and you really believed in this idea of equality, and you really acted it out in your life, that how could you not respect diversity? Mm-hmm. And if you respected diversity and you believed in the equality of men and women, how could you not see that there was harmony between science and religion, that they were part of one another? And so if you go down and you look at all of the central organizing principles of the Baha'i faith, they're all about transforming the individual at the level of concept, at the level of soul, at the level of spirit. I mean, that you not only articulate these extraordinary principles that are part of this new age, but that you also can implement them. You can act them out in your daily life, never to the point of perfection, but that you continually try to engage these principles in a meaningful way in your personal life. And this is what it means to be a Baha'i. Struggle. But it's a committed struggle. It's sometimes very unpopular because Baha'is can come across as utopian idealists sometimes. God help us, we probably are to a certain degree, but I think it also keeps a level of joy up, you know, of a level of hopefulness. It's very future-oriented. We're a very future-oriented religion, very practical, 
is very future-oriented. We're builders. We're builders. We're spiritual builders. That's what I want to be a part of. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Back to university. Continued pretty much, you know, all of the activities I was doing because I was never particularly politically active. I mean, well, you know, in, in the in, at this period in history, almost all of the college and universities were in one form or another of confrontation, students with administration. And a lot of the transformations that we now reap the benefits of in higher education were the result of student movements during those eras. And so every single, well, not every single, but, you know, majority of the campuses across the United States and Europe and some other countries were transformed at the middle of the 20th century by student movements that really introduced us to a new way of looking at the world that really brought a new perspective to national and world events. And so... I continued to work at my university in the activities that I had been, you know, working on. I, as I said, I had started a, a literary magazine. What was the name of the magazine, Robin? Drum. And why did you call it Drum? I called it Drum because the drum is a communicative device, mm-hmm. and it is a natural device as well as a musical instrument that conveys through rhythmic sounds. Uh, harmonies that are upon which you can build um, coded messages that you send to people and and this incredible call and response with this instrument that can be made out of a variety of things anywhere from you know a tree trunk to an actual constructed drum i just thought that this was a great way to talk about what a magazine ought to be doing and that is uh, sending out messages communicating with people and having people communicate back and have this sort of iteration of of conversation and dialogue going on in cycles. And what kind of magazine was it? Photographs, drawings, illustrations, Mm. art. It was all literary and artistic because that was pretty much what I was being prepared for. Uh, My undergraduate major initially was journalism. Once I realized I wasn't going to be a UN linguist, or at least didn't want to do that anymore, I was very much interested in journalism. I had worked for the Boston Globe in the summer of 1969 as an intern and had the opportunity, fortunately, to do some very exciting stories on state budget corruption in higher education. And I was flown to New York and did a story on abortion and got to go to abortion clinics. And I mean, they didn't send me out on fires and, and <laughs> you know, watching the crime page of the local police department, and mm-hmm. nor did they send me to the, you know, the social, the social pages. I... I I lucked out and got very exciting stories. So I got very interested in the idea of journalism and writing from that, and that's how I ended up starting Drum Magazine, was was sort of an extension of my journalistic interests. But not long after that, I switched back over to something that I had always had as one of my strengths, and that was the visual arts. I had studied art at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston as a kid for many, many, many years, my parents used to send me on the tea to the museum, and I would study drawing and composition at the museum school, the children's division at the MSA in Boston. And, you know, when I wasn't being sent there on Saturdays to study city art, I had dance lessons or I was doing campfire, so there was not much chance of me getting into too much trouble. <laughs> my parents were very smart. I didn't realize this, of course, until I was 18 or 19, but they had me booked from you know, one of the day to the other. So, on stuff that you enjoyed doing. 
But there was stuff I enjoyed doing, and I was very glad I didn't get an overhealthy interest in a lot of stuff that my friends were interested in, mm-hmm. which meant they were growing up too fast. Yeah. I mean, they were using drugs and alcohol much too early. They were having sex much too early. Mm-hmm. They didn't get a chance to be kids and enjoy the things that are part of growing up and being a young person yeah. because you're so focused on the physical appetite. You're so focused on trying to do the things as a kid that you think grown-ups are doing. That's what makes you grown up. If you do these things, if you drink and use drugs and have early sex, then you're grown up. And I was very glad that my my parents had sort of figured that one out and they just kept me on this sort of rotation of, you know, exhausting activity level that would have, you know, wiped out anybody. But I loved it. It was, was really my salvation. And so it was from those sort of interests that were stimulated in me as a kid that, that all these other things sort of came out in me later. So at a certain point, I leave journalism, I go into the visual arts, and then I graduated with a degree in studio art and art history at the end. Mm-hmm. This was still at UMass in Amherst? Yeah, and then I went and completed a master's degree in education. Mm-hmm. And I focused on art history methodology and writing. I focused a lot on art methodology. One of the things that happened was that I actually completed all the coursework to actually teach art at the high school level. Mm -hmm. Um, Short of the actual paper certification, I did everything else, but then realized after I went to do my practicum at Boston English High School and then at Amherst Regional High School that I did not want to be stuck in a classroom with kids. That's when I figured out that I did not want to be a teacher in a classroom. Mm-hmm. with elementary and secondary students. I didn't have the personality for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I admire people who do, but I didn't, and I knew that. And so then I went and got the master's degree because I was interested in developing programs that used the arts where I could work with kids, but my own programs. So what subsequently happened was I, in 1980, I started a program called Caravan for International Culture. And Caravan for International Culture was uh, an organization that was designed to teach kids how to deal with diversity through the visual and performing arts. And so I established curricula. I wrote grants, a lot of grants throughout the 80s, and got a lot of grants because there was a lot of money flowing from the federal government at that point. And I had a lot of contacts through my social networks. And I took this program that was essentially based on Baha'i principles. It was pervasively based on Baha'i principles. I did everything short of actually mention the Baha'i faith, except in retrospective articles I've written about it from a research perspective. But during the time I was writing it, the curriculum was all based on the spiritual principles of the Baha'i faith. Which principles in particular? Unity and diversity, unity of religions, oneness of religions, equality of men and women, uh, elimination of all forms of prejudice, spiritual solutions to economic problems, Harmony between science and religion. Those the, the curriculum was based on all of those central ideas, and and all of it, of course, stemming from this again this idea of the individual investigation of truth. If you can't start from that point with kids, there really is no point in teaching, because mm-hmm. your your challenge, I think, as a teacher, and I've been teaching higher ed for about twenty years now. I mean, your challenge is to take other people to the threshold of their own knowledge, not your knowledge but their knowledge. And so you, you lead people, you provide them with the intellectual tools, provide them with the inspiration, you provide them with resources, and you walk part of the way with them and then you let them go. 
And so I felt that these world-shaping principles of the Baha'i faith could be translated into a, a, an art education curriculum that would have much more profound effect than were I getting up and walking into a classroom every day. Because through Caravan for International Culture, I would only go into schools where I had a relationship with principals. I would then only work with principals who involved teachers in this program as professional development. I would only work in schools where teachers agreed to be trained and were part of the training, part of the process. They weren't going to walk off and have coffee while I worked with the kids, where I could actually train them in these principles and then have this on-the-job training integrated into their curriculum. And I, as an artist, was able to get grant money to do this because I had a master's degree and an undergraduate degree that essentially trained me how to talk to classroom teachers, you see, because I had been trained as a classroom teacher even though I hadn't taught. I knew how they thought. I knew how to write a curriculum for a 40-minute time slot two or three times a week. I knew how to do that. That was why I was able to keep Caravan going for about 10 years. Mm. I did other things during those yeah. years, but that was a real boon from an artistic and aesthetic point of view, from an educational point of view. Mm-hmm. What began to occur to me was that the funding stream for the arts was drying up at what we lovingly call the Newt Gingrich era because the National Endowment for the Arts had created a kind of funding stream for a lot of arts programs across the nation. During the Reagan era, a lot of this money was available. And if you know how to write grants, you know how to get money to do things, particularly to work in schools, particularly urban schools. Subsequently, of course, we proved that if students had a significant contact with visual performing artists, during their school day, this affected their, their SAT and other scores by a significant amount. Their, their performance went up because of all sorts of qualitative reasons that, that are also related to explaining how those numbers make sense. Um, and this is why the Artists in the Schools program has always been an extremely, extremely effective way of, of advancing civilization through education because it deals with the total child. Unfortunately, we did not have those evaluators in line who would have evaluated, you know, programs like mine that had been going on for 10 years. We just, we missed it. We blew it. And so those programs were effectively dismantled. They first started with level funding, and then gradually they started defunding the arts. And so it was only 10 years after that that the light bulb finally went off. The statistics were done. The evaluations come through. And now we're coming around again to another period in the social and political terrain of the U.S. where we're finally figuring out that if elementary and secondary children have an exposure to the arts, that their sense of self, their sense of poise, their sense of personal empowerment is going to have a profound effect on the other school subjects that they study. It's, it's a prime motivator. One of the things that I've been very encouraged by is that the discussions that the news about the Simon Bolivar uh, Children's Orchestra of uh, Venezuela, which is 30 years old. But one of the things that President Chavez has just done has pledged that that the program that basically only deals with 250,000 kids 
is now going to deal with a million children, and mm. he's going to provide the instruments and the free music lessons for Venezuelan children, particularly impoverished children, to learn music. I mean, I, I can actually tell you now what's going to happen to their school scores, their school retention rates, all of that is going to be enhanced by that just one factor. And so my appreciation for the artists in the schools programs in whatever country is that it's an extraordinary empowerment tool for kids because it taps the spiritual qualities of the soul and gives children a sense of empowerment, a sense of identity, a sense of achievement, a sense of discipline. So I have to praise him for that. And any other leader who understands the importance of teaching children through the arts, especially. Yeah. You ultimately got your Ph.D.? Yeah, when I realized that, you know, I really was probably this sort of roving sociologist at heart because I'd always been a social observer. I mean, with all the traveling that I'd done, it's sort of, you know, either you're doing it because you're just a tourist and you're interested in going places and laying on beaches, <laughs> or you're, you're really truly interested in humanity and you're interested in social processes, and you're interested in individuals and groups and how they function. I had, of course, been an artist for most of my life, and so I had this huge database of knowledge and experience as a visual artist that I brought into me, into my, my doctoral programs, so that I basically studied how the art world functioned. I had all of that informal information and data, and that's what I based my doctoral program on, was a study of how the art world functions. Mm -hmm. And then what did you do after you got your Ph.D.? I got my Ph.D. in 92 mm -hmm. and began focusing my re research on two distinct areas. first area was popular culture and cultural studies. And again, I was very much interested in ethnicity, race, and culture and difference from a, a sociological perspective and how that unfolded in terms of national and international affairs. And then the second stream of, of interest for me was the area of artisans, artisans or handicrafts workers around the world. Because I've been so many places in so many countries, much of what I have done is to build relationships and networks and work on projects through artists in other countries. Throughout the developing world, there are a lot of artists who are socially active who work in community-based organizing. And those artists, visual artists, who are trained in the Western sense, many of them work with handicrafts people in various countries. And so I worked with artists to work with uh, artisans or handicraft workers in various countries and began to see a way for me to, to harmonize my experiences and work as a studio artist and visual artist with other creative people who were artisans, craft workers, but from a social science perspective. And so that part of my research now looks at microenterprise or small business development. And what I do is I look at best practices in artisan industries around the world. From the point of view of the Baha'i faith, I'm looking to see to what extent those micro-enterprise artisan industries survive because they have the foresight to be implementing Baha'i-inspired principles. And so if a, a small business in a rural area in Peru or in 
South Africa or in Brazil or in China or Australia someplace has a women's empowerment scheme built into their microenterprise or their small business artisan industry, usually they're going to have greater longevity than, than artisan businesses that don't. Because while the United Nations and many other international agencies have been on the gender stick for some time now in, in the sense that they have been promoting gender equality and gender equity, it's an older principle from that from a Baha'i perspective and a more comprehensive framework of the equality of men and women is a very different principle than just women's equality. Robin, what's the difference? The difference is that the equality of men and women encourages the higher principle of equality, and it asks us to look at the social conditions of men and women and the roles of men and women from a historical and a cultural perspective and asks us to think about the ways in which those customs and practices and policies impede the equality of men and the equality of women. There are ways in which the progress, spiritual, political, and social, of men has been enormously impeded by privilege and advantage that they have had from the point of view of power. And from the point of view of disempowerment, women have been disadvantaged and disempowered and have not benefited from privilege. And so when we try to create a level playing field, you see that there is no equality anywhere on either side. Simply because men have power doesn't mean they have advantage from a spiritual point of view, from a social point of view. If you're talking about advancing civilization, and you think about it from the Baha'i point of view, from the sort of philosophical notion that man and woman are two wings of the bird, and if one of the wings is incapacitated, the bird won't fly. This means that if men feel that the only advantage that they have to offer to contribute to the advancement of civilization is that they have the power to beat people up, they have the power of coercion, it puts them ultimately at a disadvantage because if you beat everybody up, everybody's gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there have to be other ways to resolve conflict that perhaps are not masculine-oriented from a stereotypical point of view, but perhaps ask us to think about unique ways of problem-solving that women have evolved over centuries. Women tend to be function better in crisis. We know this from the Baha'i writings. So they better function. Why do they function better in crisis? They function better in crisis because they have a much more successful sense of unity and the component parts of unity. They have a sense of family. They have a sense of how to make things work, how to stretch resources. One of the things that we began to understand in international development about women when we tried to measure poverty was that so many of the statistical databases that measured poverty, particularly among women, because there's this notion of the feminization of poverty, meaning greater numbers of women are are poor than men as compared to men. But if you actually look at the statistics and compare them with the outcomes, the statistics don't really give us an accurate, they undermeasure Poverty, and that's because of something that we call austerity in women. 
Women know how to take one potato and feed seven people with it. If it was not for this kind of creative austerity, we would have a better sense that, gee, maybe she actually needs five potatoes and maybe some meat and some other things to actually create a truly healthy meal. But what she's basically done is cause the survival of the family because of this ingrained sort of creative austerity. So one of the things we need to learn about this principle of the equality of men and women is looking at the ways in which women problem solve in crisis, in various levels of crisis, to cause the survival of the family, the survival of the community. Because in many nations of the world, women are still considered ignorant, why would you ask a woman about how to solve a problem if you believe women are second-class citizens, if the customs and practices of your religion and your national laws tell you that women have no intelligence? So one of the things that Baha'u'llah has done is to open up the heavens Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that open up the mind Mm -hmm. with this principle uh, these principles of human rights. I frequently refer to the 19th century as the human rights era hmm. because in that one cent- century, from the beginning of the 1800s to the end of the 1800s, everything that is significant and human development occurs in that century. The four major movements, the anti-slavery movement, women's suffrage, the labor movement, and industrialization those completely transform humanity. We decide through the anti-slavery movement to dismantle the master-slave paradigm that we had been operating on for thousands of years everywhere, that some people are born masters and some people are born slaves. We decided to dismantle that, and beginning with Britain at the beginning of the 1800s and Brazil at the end of the 1800s, every one of these nations dismantle the slave trade, it falls like a house of cards. And all of this happens in the era when Baha'u'llah came. So it's no accident that these these world-changing events happen in that century, and we're reaping the benefits from that now. So the big difference between the equality of men and women and women's empowerment. Women's empowerment cannot advance without men's empowerment, but it's an empowerment of a type that we have a lot to learn about yet. The other area of research that you mentioned was the research in the area of uh, popular culture mm-hmm. and the relationship of popular culture with ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit of what you found in your research in, in that sure. area? I think one of the things that motivated my interest in, in this is because I, of course, came with this track record and experience as a creative person. And so that was a natural segue. But something began to happen in the late 90s, and that was I noticed that I was losing the imagination of my students in the sense that you could see another generation was beginning to go to the mountaintop. And if you wanted to go to the mountaintop with them, you had to understand their cultural perspective. I don't mean that racially or ethnically, but from a generational point of view. I mean, what were these people thinking? These were different students than had come to the university 10 years before, and different social and political events in the landscape of the United States as well as the world were affecting who they were and how they were thinking. They were a generation that was almost completely driven by visual media, and so they learned in a different kind of way. Their heroes and heroines were different people from those of my generation and my era. 
So I wanted to understand who these people were, and because I'm a parent and, you know, I was sort of going through this at home, I really needed to get to the bottom of a generation that I really didn't understand <laughs> at, at a certain point. And so I began looking into popular culture movements, particularly hip-hop in the late 90s, second half of the 90s anyway. And my mentors were, of course, my kids and my students. I mean, they were the hip-hop heads. I wasn't. I was too old to be a hip-hop head. But I did understand this to be an enormous uh, cultural movement, an artistic movement, and a social movement. And it was the music, once again, that for America was uniting humanity across the globe. I mean, this was a cultural movement that was deeply felt in Algeria, in Japan, in South Africa, in Russia, Finland, Chile. I mean, the impact of, of hip-hop as a social movement was extraordinary. I mean, Hollywood, of course, and the big money makers have been marketing it as, you know, a big commercial venture, all of which it is. But from a social point of view and a cultural point of view, this was really the voice of another generation. It was, in a way, the inheritor of some of the early movements of the 20th century. And they were making their voice heard through music, but also through this new lifestyle. And I began to integrate some aspects of that cultural movement into my courses and began offering some of the first courses in hip-hop that were offered at a lot of colleges and universities. There were only a handful of us who felt that there was intellectual validity and integrity to this material and who could find ways of, of doing this in a way that could satisfy the curriculum content of the university because there are all these you know, requirements that you have to satisfy when you're designing courses. And, Curriculum development had been something that I had studied a little bit in my master's work at, at UMass Amherst. And so I had a forte for organizing curriculum and developing curriculum. And so I redesigned my courses. And this was my way of making contact with another generation of young people to understand them, to validate their culture, to validate their vision of the future, to support them. And so not only did I teach this material in part in some of the courses that I offered at the university, but I also worked from a creative standpoint with a lot of these young people. One of the more powerful movements that came out of the hip-hop movement was the spoken word poetry movement. And of course, there had been a huge spoken word poetry movement in the 50s and the 60s that were part of my generation and the generation before me, and the beat poets of the 50s, the poets of the, the and communities of color, black and Puerto Rican communities throughout the United States, there was an enormous creative wellspring that had emerged during this period that provided a way for people to express their voice. I mean, this is what I had done as founder of Drum Magazine at the university. So, again, that's just yet another iteration of how to be a creative person in the real world. So I began reading with spoken word poetry artists and performing with them. I was not performing it the way they did, using their methodology, but, but writing poetry, continuing to write poetry, which was something I had already done, was a way of being a part of that community. 
I became a kind of elder mascot, I mm-hmm. guess, with another generation of spoken word poetry artists here in Boston and New York. You know, we did some work in some other places around the country. And I developed an incredible network with young people all over the world because, of course, by this time, information technology and the Internet was pretty powerful. And so in some of those early years when the Internet made it possible for you to communicate with people across vast distances, I was communicating with a lot of young people from countries all over the world who, you know, wanted to know how and why this cultural movement had been integrated into the university curriculum. I noticed there was a program that you participated in soon after 9-11 called One Year Later, Gaining Perspective, Defining Religion's Role After September 11th. And it mentions in there that, in addition to you being the chairwoman of African American Studies at Northeastern, that you had lost a family member in the 9-11 Yeah, distantly, and by marriage, and so wasn't a blood relative. But yeah, it was a family member who was working at the Pentagon. So what did you address there when you... Well, I think that the university faculty were very surprised at the student reaction during 9-11. Students were asking questions like, why do they hate us? Why are they doing this to us? And we were, like, completely surprised by the naivete that seemed reflected in these responses of students. And so we started what we used to call in the 60s teach-ins. Within a month, at least at my university, we started teach-ins with the students. And my department, when I was chair, did one of the first ones, and it was standing room only. And the notion was that, you know, if we're not getting through to you through the normal coursework and your majors and your internships and your co-ops, maybe we need to think of another way to reach out to students to build bridges between one generation and the next about how one becomes actively involved as a global citizen in what's happening in the world and that one of the first platforms of activism is to be empowered by knowledge. You have to know what's going on in the world. And so the teach-ins that we offered for the rest of the semester, really, during that fall of 2001, were about trying to empower students at a whole other level of social and political awareness about what was really happening, particularly in the developing world, but the relationship between the developing world and the developed world, the relationship between overconsumption and underconsumption, this statistic that's so often used to explain that 80% of the world's resources are controlled by 20% of the world's people. We were trying to, and bound to, try to explain the imbalances in the use of the world's resources uh, to our students, and that perhaps levels of poverty, relatively high poverty and literacy, and low access to health care in other countries perhaps might have some connection with us as Americans. Mm-hmm. And that was the level at which we were trying to increase knowledge with students, was to expand their awareness, not just throw a bunch of facts at them because they're at university, and so they've had to compete to get to that point. But we were trying to expand their horizons and stimulate their awareness about the interconnections between human beings in different parts of the world, that what happens in one part of the world is deeply affected by people somewhere else. 
And then you also participated in Istanbul, the National Association of Ethnic Studies, and you presented something about how the sacred writings of Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith command peacemaking. This was in 2006? Yes, that was a busy year. I was on three continents that year. I was in Puerto Rico for six months. Doing what? Well, I was on a sabbatical Uh um, at the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras, um, doing my research in micro-artisan research. Mm -hmm. But before that, I had been to China, to Beijing and Dali, and and then at the end of the year, interrupted my sabbatical in Puerto Rico to go to Istanbul and Ankara as well. And this was a conference with the National Association of Ethnic Studies, of which I am a member and have been for several years, this organization has been building a relationship with Boazici University in Istanbul, which is a very prestigious university. And I was very interested, given the fact that I was going to be in a Muslim country, but a country that was in the midst of a negotiated membership with the European Union, I was very interested in seeing Turkey from a first-hand point of view and actually looking at the issue of religion that, of course, Turkey has been struggling with in some very interesting kinds of ways for many years because, you know, while it's a secular state, it's a predominantly Muslim state, and there are various democratization moves in that country. But it's also the country that is half in the East and half in, in the West. And so it's an absolutely fascinating context in which you think about how religion can be a source of peace. And my presentation was looking at how the writings of the Baha'i faith and the writings of Islam and the writings of Christianity actually contained in them so many aspects of peace building. And that's what my presentation was about in order to get the focus off of the differences that exist between the religions, which if you focus on them, you can focus on the ad nauseum. But when you get down to the basics of what true religion is, and that is the promotion of the welfare of humanity, it's really about peace building. That's what the principles of, of Muhammad and Jesus and Baha'u'llah, as well as all of the other prophets, are about. They're peace builders. And so I extracted from the writings of the various texts, those elements of peace-building and peacemaking that I felt were synchronized with these three religions. And if you looked at it that way, it's impossible not to see the unity of these religions. And I think what was very empowering by the presentation was that there were several young Muslim students whose eyes just lit up. Number one, that someone from the West was talking about Islam from a positive point of view and highlighting the aspects of peace building that are embedded in the Quran, but also that it was being presented in comparison with other religions about which they knew less. But Robin, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your thoughts and your experiences. It's been a pleasure, Warren. Thanks. As I say on the signature on my email, peace in our century. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robin Chandler a Baha'i from the Boston area who is an artist and a social scientist. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. (music) 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.